welcome to the Digging Six Feet Under podcast, where every week we review each episode of HBO's original television series, Six Feet Under, with your host and licensed funeral director, Victor Rubio. Hello and welcome to the Digging Six Feet Under podcast. I'm your host and licensed funeral director, Victor Rubio, and today we are here to discuss episode 11 of season one titled The Trip. I'm here with today's guest, uh, Colin Llewellyn. Colin, how you doing? Good. How are you doing? Not bad. Colin, if you want to just give your, tell the people a little bit about yourself, what's your, uh, I guess let's start here before we get into that. Your experience with Six Feet Under, what's like your encapsulated, you know, uh, a premise of Six Feet Under? Yeah. Uh, Six Feet Under, I found it the couple months after I graduated college, um, one of my really good friends had just died of leukemia and yeah and so it kind of hit me in that real profound way um i was living at home i graduated college in florida and i was moving to chicago and i had about three months where i was living at home and i just in three weeks just devoured all the box sets i just (laughs) kept buying them after i finished each season so it, it became very important to me um because of michael's death and as soon as I could, my girlfriend moved in in Chicago. I was like, you got to watch this show. So we watched it again, and then I watched it again. And I've seen this show about four times in four years. Uh, <laughs> so I didn't watch it as it came out. Um, right. I was a little too young and didn't have HBO growing up. But mm-hmm. but it just became one of those shows that really – it kind of, I've, I've always been a movie guy. Um, yeah. I, uh, I write for a website. I'm a critic, but Six Feet Under became a show that showed me like how artful television could be. And it's funny because everyone, there's so many great shows out there. We're in such a golden era of shows, and obviously this is 15 years ago. But the one sticking point that this show will always have is uh, how do I say? You know, like let, let's take Breaking Bad. Not everyone cooks meth, but everyone at some point in their lives has to deal with death and kind of like you said your personal connection is you had a personal friend who died and everyone unfortunately at some point or another has a a death and that's how just kind of this show connects with you know connects with everyone on whatever level colin you had mentioned you're a writer and a critic and you had told me you are releasing a podcast what is the podcast about yeah it's uh it's called another film podcast because i like to be self-aware about uh how many podcasts there are about two dudes <laughs> talking about movies out there but right. the conceit of the show is taking uh two great movies uh one more recent um maybe after the turn of the century and the other a classic and discussing what the dna of those two movies are so uh, the first episode will be coming out this month. We're going to be talking about La La Land and Singing in the Rain. Um, wow. We're going to be talking about uh, some other episodes we plan on doing. It's me and my uh, my good friend Judson Grant. We're going to be doing 2001 Space Odyssey, Interstellar. Um, I'm yeah. hoping we'll wow. get a, yeah. There will be blood and Treasure the Sierra Madre if I'm lucky. Uh, so just trying to maybe people who are big fans of the recent movies and don't know about the old movies or uh, there's not a lot out there talking about classic movies right now and uh, I think that gets overlooked a lot because we're in the age of the YouTube critic and 
that's <laughs> it's mostly just dudes with a lot of toys behind them talking about comic book movies so i'm trying to like do my thing and get some people to watch those old oldies you know it's funny you say that when i was coming trying to do a podcast and i'm doing this podcast because i like i love podcasting and uh you know i do love this show um you know i had toiled around a bunch of ideas because kind of like you said it's like you know uh, you're 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 another dude just talking about movies so you gotta you try to kind of come up with a unique twist with it you can't just i want to talk about my favorite movies mm-hmm. uh in like the, the the beginning stages of this i had actually toiled with the idea of i think it was sopranos and boardwalk empire and like instead of doing one episode on each it was going to be comparing the two or even mm-hmm. maybe even breaking bad um just trying to i know there's a sopranos podcast i know there's a boardwalk empire and there's breaking bad but what about comparing each episode and the growth but I, that was to me it was too much work and you know why would you want to listen to me i'm at least a funeral director and that's why i was like you know what i could talk about this show and i could at least if i can't give you anything on the on the film side or whatever the art side of the show i could at least give you the funeral director something that you know not a lot of people know about um so yeah it's just funny you got to you got to try and kind of reinvent the old podcast if that makes sense you know for sure, and you took my original podcast idea. <laughs> well, let me say this. <laughs> let me say this. Uh, I like to tell people how I found people because I think, except for two guests so far, it's just been random internet search, and I just literally type in six feet under a podcast or watching, mm-hmm. and I just, you know, I say, hey, if you're disinterested, why don't you come on the show? And yeah, <laughs> yeah, I had seen it. I was like, oh man, someone did a six feet on the podcast, and then I, I, I kept scrolling through the tweets, and it's like, oh no, he never got to do it. Uh, so then, yeah, I reached out to you. I was like, "Hey, man, do you want to do it? Uh, if 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 you don't mind sharing, like, what ha- like what? Why did it fall through? Um, was it just not enough well, momentum or whatever?" Yeah, I uh, I love podcasting. I love mm-hmm. I listen to too many of them, and so right, I was like, exactly. "What what could I podcast about? What do I love more than anything?" And this show is just extreme. Like my girlfriend and I, we have framed six feet under pictures on our walls i don't have pictures of my family i have pictures (laughs) of the fishers so priorities of course (laughs) so when i i kind of i was thinking about doing this like episode by episode and maybe getting more people to watch the show because as much as it's was the one of the backbones of the golden age it does not get talked about enough these days Um, yeah and a lot of people don't know it still so it, it was just an idea and then i was lazy (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I, I moved to L.A. six months ago, and a good friend of mine who I met on the Internet was moving from Portland to L.A. a couple months behind me. And mm-hmm. he loves the show. It's one of the things we bond about. And we're like, well, when we both live, we're both moving to the Valley, so let's start this podcast. And then you had it. So um, <laughs> it, it's mostly to do with my own laziness, but I'm happy to sit here and guest on yours as much as you'll have me. You have a much better uh, in than I do. I'm just a fan, but I like the funeral director's perspective. Yeah, and, and, and you know what? That's the only reason why I, I like took it, but I finally did it because it was just like, you know what? I could lean on other people to give better insight on the, you know on, on a character or whatever, but I could give you the well, you know, Rico's not embalming the right way or whatever, or I'm trying to you know <laughs> furthermore, I try to divide this podcast between 
letting people in on the funeral industry and just whatever and try to talk about the show but kind of when i do this i lean on the guest to talk about the show and i'll try to like you know insert my funeral director um yeah and let me say too there was actually a podcast that covered this uh it was called fisher cast it looked like they had ran about five years ago um when i had started the podcast i reached out to them just sort of like you know hey listen i know you did your podcast i'm gonna you know i'm gonna start you know doing my own and whatever and i'm actually going to have them as guests next season um their 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 podcasts were a lot more uplifting and you know if you if you love the show that much and you can't hear enough people talking about it definitely go check it out it was called fisher cast but they had they had like about four or five people on every episode and it was a lot more lighthearted. and and not that i'm serious but you know i try to dissect this episode and they just they had a lot more um how do i say yeah, it was just a lot lighter, and you know, I like to I, at least at least hear what we do and just kind of how the episode goes. You know, I like to get into the, uh, no, no, the the meat of it. You know, just like the, re- the what this show gives us, the real emotions and stuff. I like to, you know, dissect that. So, absolutely. Um, during the week, Colin, we were talking, and I'm gonna preface it because, you know, we're gonna see how it goes, but. If you, if you're a fan of the show, you know, and I mean Jesus, you just uh, HBO, they put out quality stuff. No matter how bad or good, let's just say the writing is, the 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 the, the on-screen product is always qua- you know top quality. But this episode, you know, we're in the eleventh episode of the first season. I, I couldn't I couldn't get my my I couldn't come to grips of exactly what I felt. It's just that it just didn't feel six feet under esque top quality of an episode i i think you were kind of with me we kind of like left it at that what what do you think before we get into it well when i think about the first season there are two episodes that i remember that i always like just kind of have to get through and one of them is crossroads uh okay. I'm, I'm not like crazy about claire's hiking uh <laughs> subplot yeah um but then the other was this one and I don't know what it is, but there's in shows that are set in LA, they always have the obligatory Vegas baby episode. <laughs> and Vegas has never been like that interesting to me. I've never right. gone, yeah. but as like a setting for, you know, like I love casino, but like yeah. when modern family goes to Vegas, there's not much for me to chew on. And yeah, so this yeah. one was always, it's like, okay, they're going to Vegas. Uh, we're going away from LA. Um, and, I think it's it's a it's a it's a fine episode, but uh, it wasn't my top choice when you reached out to me. But I'm happy yeah. to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's funny about the Vegas thing because I have I have in my notes is like, so what, you know we have the Vegas bottle episode, and do they still do? I mean, I don't watch enough new television to to know, but do they still do this where, you know, the group goes to Vegas? I you know, Modern Family is its own thing, so I know what you're saying there. Um, but let's just say drama series, whatever. They don't still do the. Va- this was like an early, like I saw a '90s, early 2000s thing, right? Do they? Do you watch anything that that you know that still does this today? Uh, I'm thinking on it. I, I like. Yeah. I remember like Entourage did one, but that was a decade yeah. ago by now. Yeah. But I don't watch a ton that. I'm try- like yeah. the TV shows I watch are like Westworld, Game of Thrones. So they're not doing a yeah. Vegas episode. <laughs> <laughs> Game of Thrones in Vegas. That's funny. 
<laughs> but all right, yeah, think about it. If, if anything pops into your head, let me know because that's something I noticed. It's like, man, I, ha- I haven't seen a new TV series or even movie besides The Hangover, you know, do this, va- you know, this bottle episode where they, they, you know, switch up the story and go to Vegas. But whatever, if you think of something along the way. Um, so the episode we're going to be talking about is called The Trip, and it aired on August 12, 2001, and was directed by Michael Engler. And our death capsule starts out with a concerned dad looking at his baby. And, you know, while we have, you know, we've seen point of view shots from a baby before in, you know, in media, I like the little added touch of, I don't know if you notice, like the blur kind of mm-hmm. around it, you know, the circle. The mother goes to a rocking chair and, you know, sort of as the dad exits the room, the baby looks up at the, the diorama. Is that what I could call it? I, I, I don't know. Okay, yeah, I'll, it's a diorama. I, I just I just confirmed okay. it. <laughs> and, you know, we hear a little baby breath, and, you know, unfortunately, we have our first infant death on the show. Uh, Dylan Michael Cooper dies. Um, we don't know how many months, because it's still within the same year. And then, Colin, when we had talked about the episode, I knew you had watched it because you messaged me just going, oh, no, is this the SIDS episode? You know, this is a tough episode. If you have kids or even if you don't have kids, if you just, you know, just uh, think about the, the, the thought of a baby dying, um, you know, it's just so tragic, you know? It is. Uh, just a quick uh, note. It, the, it was three weeks old. They mentioned oh, it. Oh, it was three there. weeks old. Jesus. Okay. Mm-hmm. I didn't I, I didn't pick up on that. But yeah, uh, my, my sister just had a, her first baby and it's my first nephew. He's four months old. And we kind of talked about this briefly. She she lives in Australia, but she visited last month, and she had to arrange for like to rent a crib and a car seat and all these things that like I'd never consider. I was like, why can't he just sleep in the bed with you? <laughs> and and because I'm just like, eh, it's just a baby, like whatever. And uh, she's like, well, she knew she knew a family over in Australia and. They let the baby sleep in the bed, and it suffocated because it rolled over, and it's, oh, just, God. it's all these things that you don't even think about. Mm-hmm. And this this is even more tragic. It's just it just goes away, like yeah. We we learned about this in school, and my schooling was God 11, 12 years ago, and it was just funny because it's just like you know you you learn about different causes of death and whatnot and how it affects you. Let's just say while embalming. Um, I remember learning about SIDS and I don't, maybe they have advanced the, 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 the learning on this, but when we learned about it in school, it was just kind of like, yeah, that's just what it is. There's no, no known for it. Uh, let me say too, cause maybe I shouldn't assume everyone knows what SIDS means. It's, you know, it's S I D S and that stands for, uh, sudden infant death syndrome. Uh, I don't know the science behind it, and I should have looked it up instead of just talking about it off the top of my head, but there's just kind of no known cure for it, right? Uh, not, not a cure, a uh, cause of it. It's just, it's literally exactly that. It's just, for whatever reason, an infant fails to, to keep all its system going. I don't know how much you know about it. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, that's about as much as I do know about it. Um, and, and, yeah. And to be honest, I, I think I think that's as far, you know, maybe there's there's a lot of research and whatnot behind it, but to my understanding, as far as I know it, is that's just kind of what it is, and it's just a constant learning about it and why it happens, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, our episode starts out with David having spent the night with a man, presumably from the episode prior when David was calling the sex line. And it was funny, you know, David's being rather blunt, 
you know, he's just telling the guy, get out of my house now. Um, you know, there's sort of like a self-loathe for what he did, you know, calling. Mm-hmm. I, I, I could only imagine if you had called someone from, let's just say, the sex line and that person sleeping on your, on your couch the next day. Um, you know, David's professional and it's just weird. You know, you wake up and that person's still on the couch. It's different from a one night stand, right? I mean, this is in. Well, I, 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 if a carryover from the previous episode, then I assume there's maybe some currency exchanged. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm assuming so just being, cause I think as we last, last left off, he called up like, you know, he goes on his 2001 internet and <laughs> dials, dials this up and. I, I believe that that's so yeah I'm assuming it's from that I love I love the guy calls him Jim very <laughs> bluntly and with, with that yeah. with that tone he says well people aren't always what they seem to be <laughs> you know and, and and just great and it's just so funny a show about death when this when this guy comes outside and Ruth is there she just looks at the guy and. She just gets this S and M vision of David and this guy. Oh. David's chained up, and this guy's wearing—I don't know what the term is—the the stuff with the diamonds and whatever. And he's just whipping David, mm-hmm. and all this guy does is just—I mean, he's as plain as it can be. He's wearing a t-shirt and jeans. You know, for all the depiction they do of gay people on the show and in media, he doesn't. He looks as normal. He looks—he looks like his name is John Smith, and you know, Ruth putting together what maybe have happened. <laughs> And she doesn't even know what to do because her visceral reaction, and she's outside sort of planting, <laughs> she mm-hmm. just sort of sprays yeah. him with the hose. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, that's a great, that's that's exactly what Ruth would do. Like, that's exactly her character. Just not knowing what to do. I'm just going to spray you with the hose. It's just such a, a visceral reaction. Like, exactly. Like, she didn't even think to do that. It just happened. <laughs> right. I, I love uh, I love their conversation. It's just so it's so human the way she she kind of pops in his his uh, in the in law suite and you know she's just really trying to get to the point but she doesn't know how and she's just like I th- I think we should we should talk mm-hmm. about and he like he knows they both know they're talking about it without talking about it but they're not going to talk about it. It's it's a beautifully like and that's what's great about the show in general is. It just captures those human conversations and experiences in such a normal way, like such right. a real way. You know, it's funny, and, and she she gets a vision again because David just has his suit hanging, and he's literally just reaching up for his suit, and mm-hmm. she gets, you know, that vision hits her again of him being whipped and whatever, and, you know, that that's something I want to talk about because you could see her struggling to ask. She wants. She's trying to muster up the strength to ask David if he's gay, and I, you know what I sort of started thinking is like, uh, is that okay? Like, can can and I don't know if the age matters or the relationship matters, but I don't know. Should she be asking that? You know, as her son. Like, what, what's your thoughts on that? Like, isn't that something you're supposed to let the person come out to, or just bring it up as opposed to asking? You know, I think. In a 2001 setting, mm-hmm. there she she doesn't know how to navigate those conversations, right? And I think now, I mean, I think the the two periods between 2001 and 2017, where we are now, Happy New Year, everyone. Uh, <laughs> we um, there was that 
time where it's like, well, you don't out people and you, you let them. But, but as we see homosexuality as for what it is, which is just your sexual orientation. Right. I think now it's more of just like, a, oh, yeah, you're gay. Okay, moving on. Right. 2001, it was much more this huge ordeal. And in between, it was like, well, let them come out as they want to. Um, and I, I think, she, I, I don't think she even knows how to talk to her son, like, about the business, more or less his sexuality. Um, I think it comes from a place of her just being hurt that he didn't tell her already. And, and you know, I just, I, I don't know. I, I've never, unless I'm like, high, I don't know, just, I got to thinking like, is that something you should ask just bluntly like that? But I think age matters and relationship matters. You know, I can't, I can't ask you right now, Colin, are you gay? And, but maybe if you're my brother and we're having somewhat of a serious talk, you know, I could sort of ask you, but you know, they were just kind of, I don't know. It was, it was obviously at the forefront of her mind and that's why she was struggling to get there. Whereas he knows it's coming, but you know, David's sort of like, I don't have time for this. I'm out of here. I don't, I'm not ready to have the discussion of I am gay telling my mother, you know? Yeah, and and for David, I think his whole season one is him telling himself, you know, like, like obviously he knows, but but his journey is him being comfortable in his own skin with that, and yeah, um, it comes back later in the uh, the episode in the strip club, you know, he says, "I wish I would have." They said, "I wish you would have told us that." And he says, "Believe me, I do too," <laughs> uh, and I think he's that's that's his conversation with Ruth, like. Yeah, should have just gotten this done ages ago, and I wouldn't have to dance around my own <laughs> humanity. Right. Uh, David and Nate are making arrangements with the baby's parents, and I like how they execute the scene because it's not just another set of arrangements or, or an intake, as they call it on the show. You know, how could these babies? And I'm referring to the parents because they are young. I don't know if we get an age, but. They're, they're babies, you know, I'm, I'm 30, 31 years old, but you know, you look at a, someone who's 22 and you're like, man, you're, you're so young. And that, that's me as a, as a, as a 31 year old saying that, um, mm-hmm. but you know, how, how would you even know how to arrange an, inter, an infant's funeral? Most people, I'm going to say majority of, you know, people, let's say my age and older have never had to make a grown adult funeral, let alone a baby or an infant funeral. And we have Claire calls games. Well, ladies and gentlemen that are listening to this podcast, me and Colin had a slight uh, flub up, if you will. We recorded an entire episode, and at some point, the audio cut off. We had to recreate, or we are going to recreate what had happened if if you're if you do a podcast you know what a fear this is to record an entire episode and find out in the end a you know a certain person didn't end up recording and after feeling down and trying to get back into it uh, me and Colin are re-recording the rest of the episode from the point we cut off and I had told Colin instead of starting from the beginning I thought I would love the idea of just just being an organized train wreck. That's right. <laughs> so we're going to try and pick up where we left off, where the audio got cut off. If this podcast is 
not as organized for you. That's my apologies. It's not on Colin. Point all hate mail towards me. And with that being said, let's roll back into the episode. And here is where, I'm sorry, Claire calls Gabe's mom. And we find out as the cliffhanger from the previous episode that Gabe is in the hospital uh, due to an overdose. You know, Gabe looks fairly healthy to have just been overdosing. And he overdoses due to heroin and speed. And something I wanted to ask you is, Colin, do you know what speed... <laughs> How am I supposed to do this? I'm leaving this in. Um, well, we were, we were talking about trying to figure out what speed is code word for. It's, uh, I'm glad you asked. Uh, it's, it's a form of methamphetamine. I never knew that, and uh, I wonder how many people did know that. I always thought speed was code word for heroin, but yes, after asking the question, having not researched it, and now that we both have researched it, we find out speed is code word for he- uh, methamphetamine, if you didn't know. <laughs> so yes, he took some speed and heroin and basically tried to commit suicide. Um, Claire, you know, just being the solid person she is, shows up to be a good friend and help him uh she says she had drove all the way from barstow uh you being in la how far is that from where i'm assuming they're in hollywood or a part of hollywood is that where the show takes place or los angeles yeah it's 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 in either the valley or the west adams region of la i haven't figured that out yet but barstow would be a good two hours for claire if she beat traffic so (laughs) she went a long way to bring those uh, mcmuffins yeah, and she brings him the egg McMuffins, and we see Gabe is, you know, sort of complaining about it, where he should be rather thankful, and, you know, that's something that exactly Claire's character would do, but, you know, Claire Claire gives him the stink eye of sorts, and Gabe is like, yeah, you're right, um, thank you, thank you for these cold egg McMuffins. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brenda shows up at the last minute to accompany Nate and David to the funeral director convention in Vegas. Going back on that theme of this episode just being a little under, six feet under quality, you know, that moment where, you know, they're walking into the convention and uh, Nate asks Brenda, you know, for a book of matches and he does this whole little, I don't know, such a staged, like, to me it was like a staged, cheesy, take that Gilardi where he hands him the matches and five bucks for a can of gas and says, you know, next time you want to burn something. You know, there's also a part where Gilardi is just sort of like, well, I guess I won't see you at the Luxor later for the Kroner party. Um, Was this cheesy to you or is that just me being nitpicky? Uh, You know, it's a little bit of both. It's like half cheese, half nitpick. Um, I think, uh, I think that Nate's uh, interaction with Gilardi it's kind of an interesting contrast to, uh, not to get ahead of ourselves, but his confrontation with Billy later in the episode. Because one feels super natural, and the other one feels a little bit cheeseball, like you said. And I wonder I wonder how much of that was on purpose. Um, be- because I think uh, the the interaction with uh, Gerald, Gerald... God damn it. With Geraldo Rivera. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was... Probably something that he spent like three nights in a row thinking about, you know? Like, <laughs> like he, he practiced in the mirror? 
Yeah, and he went to the ATM to get that five bucks because Nate doesn't have cash on him. And and then he shows up. But where the Billy thing, he was not expecting that. So I, I, think, I think Alan Ball is a good enough writer to make sure that that played kind of cheese ball. Like, yeah. I don't think we're supposed to walk away thinking Nate's a badass for doing that. Yeah. But I, I think we're supposed to get the impression, like, he, he, when he found out about this trip he started planning his, his grand move. Um, so, so I think that might've been the intention of the scene, or at least that's how I interpret it. And you know, what's funny too, as now it's been both Nate and David, who's had sort of their, you know, their planned verbal revenge. If you remember earlier in the season when they're, they're sitting at a restaurant and they're talking about the offer to buy the fishers out, David has a whole, you know, just a verbal lashing on Gilardi if you remember, and he just kind of, mm-hmm. you know, don't you dare ever threaten me or my family. Compared to what Nate is, you know, this whole stick of matches and five bucks, David was a hell of a lot more threatening and, and you know, uh, uh, efficient than this little cheese thing that Nate does with the, the matches and whatnot, you know? Yeah, that's true. And you think David might be a little more on the side of a weird gesture like that, kind of this weird passive-aggressive <laughs> right, thing. Right. And maybe uh, I, I like that because it kind of goes along with the uh, the the crossing of those two characters in this episode. Um, I don't know if it was in the first 25 minutes or, or not, but we were talking about how Nate had this big plan to party in Vegas and he shows up to the funeral homes uh, conference and, and it's kind of a bummer and he stays in with Brenda and then David ends up going out and he's the one who wanted <laughs> the quiet night. And I wonder, right. you know... It's it's interesting, just like when you look at the show as a whole, the the writing is is done so well that like they're such clear characters, but their character traits do tend to blend into each other very much. Right. How like I don't know if you have siblings, but I have two brothers and a sister, and there are things I do where I'm like, oh my god, that was such a Lauren thing to do, <laughs> or such a Austin thing to say, but it's not really you know, and and I like I like that. I don't, I don't know if that's intentional or not, but Sometimes I pick up on it, and it just really helps this series feel so real to me. No, and I'll tell you what, that that is a part of getting older. Uh, and, you know, it's sort of, you're doing something. And, and to the sibling, at least to me, I do something, and I'm like, oh, shit, that's exactly what my father did. It's like, oh, my yeah. God. When you could realize it, because you've been doing it all along. But there's just a moment when you have the realization. And you picture that they are brothers, and, you know, there's sort of a spoiler, but... Later on, as the series goes on, you know, uh, uh, David is picking up a lot of Nathaniel's things and whatnot, and, and same thing with Nate, obviously. Um, so yeah, that that and that's real writing. Like that's 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 how real people are later in your life because you are who your parents are. You know, it's in your blood and it's how you were raised and whatnot. So yeah, that's a really it's a really good writing, uh, whatever trope or whatever you want to say what the word is that, you know, it's real life that you would you would become. You know, it's a great point. Rico is at the funeral home and he's left to handle the baby case. And we see he's about to start preparing the body for visitation. And, you know, there's a moment he's about to start. He looks at the scalpel and he just can't do it. And he sort of breaks down. Right before this scene, though, is where, you know, they're at the ultrasound and Vanessa. Vanessa's told that she needs to be on strict bed rest because her high uh, blood pressure is too high. You know, after Rico has this little freak out at the funeral home, he goes home for a lunch break. 
this thing about the lunch break, like we were talking, I, I, I talked about this with other funeral directors because I was wondering, am I being too harsh on Rico? And that being Rico, let's say he's a veteran funeral director. And, you know, one of the things about my job when people ask, it's like, man, that's so depressing. You must bring your your work home with you all the time. And it's sort of you kind of distance yourself from it. You de- you're almost desensitized to it. So for Rico to be so distraught over this case that he has, it, it, it was a little, you know, off in the writing. Again, a hard thing when you talk about this and I'm going to if I'm going to be as nitpicky as the quote unquote funeral director here. I just I I couldn't see him being that distraught over it and I know he has a baby on the way you hearing that do you think I'm being too hard on him or you know do you think as someone as experienced as Rico who goes through all this you know sees this stuff kind of day in day out do you think it was a little overwrought just the way how broken down he was by this and and there, there is the kicker too that I have to add that obviously he has a baby on the way so yeah well, here's here's what I would say to you. I think like as a narrative function, pairing these two stories is a it's it's almost a bit on the nose, but it works very well. But I would say, in my recollection, this is the only time Rico's work gets him distraught. So perhaps maybe he's just as strong-willed as you are, but maybe this is the thing that could break him. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should. As from your from your side of the fence, you should be like, well, maybe this is just like that three week old cadaver, and then his his baby, which is due any moment, but they're having complications. You know that three week little window of time it has really gotten under his skin, and so I think obviously there would be no narrative tension if he looked at the baby and was like, eh. and then he went home and they're like, Hey, she's having problems. And he was like, ah, eh, you'll be fine. And then he went out <laughs> for beers. Yeah. Uh, but I, from the perspective that you're looking at it, maybe think of it more as like, this must've been really bad for it to get to him because he's that experienced and he's that good. You know, that's a great point. And I guess, I guess as I'm saying this, I'm going to divide whoever my audience is right now listening. Cause I, and you bring up a great point that it's like, yeah, well, maybe this is the one that broke him. And every every funeral director, at least my business, has that one case that kind of sticks with them. Not emotionally, but just like, oh, I'll always remember this case or this family. I guess my audience right now is divided into funeral directors and non-funeral directors. Because funeral directors would be like, yeah, like this is this is too, like, no, you're, you're, you're supposed to know how to deal with this by now. And other people sure. are probably like, no, he's having a kid and he's, he has a... a a three-week baby on the ta- on his embalming table. No, like this is exactly what a human being should be feeling. But you're right. I'll I'll look at it as this is the case to break Rico at a very an emotional point in his life. You know, he's expecting his second kid. Emotions are high all over the place. Brenda is at the jackpot table, and you know we saw earlier that Billy has been sort of uh, stalking them. Because he, he, there's a quick scene earlier where he shows up and you see him in the background. When he shows up to the the, the jackpot table, he's, you know, he, he shows up acting as if he's not absolutely crazy. And, you know, they get into this little rift, whatnot, of whether Billy committed suicide and whatnot and the bomb that he made. And we get to see Nate come in and finally 
have that real reaction of finally getting to put his hands on Billy and just for not being crazy. He gets to physically, you know, uh, apprehend him for this thing he's getting into with Brenda. And again, because I, I, I can't help it, we, we had talked on, on the, the lost recording. I had asked you, you know, your take on the Brenda-Billy Chenoweth saga. And it's because as much as I've watched this show and you experience it at all different ages, I've never been able to get a full grasp on it. And you had a, a pretty interesting take on how to kind of digest and decipher up to this point in season one, episode 11, the Chenoweth saga and what's going on if you wouldn't mind kind of run through that again for me too because i was interesting to hear for me as someone who has watched the show well i think uh something i was getting at earlier was their relationship uh being explored on six feet under in 2001 is kind of ahead of its time when we talk about like mental illness and codependency issues and and how that was depicted in media i think when you look at their situation being raised by the two psychiatrists and um the distance that's between their parents that they were kind of all that they had and so they had that codependency growing up and so some of those lines start to get a little blurred when when we're talking about how close that they really are and because we're talking about two straight a man and a woman who happened to be brother and sister, but th- you get a sense that there's still that primal jealousy that when Brenda gets paired off with another man romantically, she's still, he's replacing Billy time with Brenda. And so that jealousy that stews there when that they're, they become so close and so codependent. Yeah. It becomes very real. And at the same time, we're also talking about someone who has a mental illness and the dialogue in 2001 was much different than it is now. Uh, before, it was mostly, it was either you're crazy or like take your meds and shut up. Mm-hmm. And now we're finally, as a society, being able to um, just talk openly about it and try and understand these things because uh, I think Billy would be much healthier and happier if he was. I mean, he, he might be around today. I'm not going to spoil the show for you, but if he was. Billy, as we know him in this episode in 2016, I think he might be a little bit healthier. Um, and shout out, speaking of, of death and mental illness, to Carrie Fisher, uh, who was kind of like on the forefront of talking about yeah, mental illness and addiction yeah. and making it you know, something that we could all discuss, especially about ourselves, not others. Uh, she's a hero of mine, and I figured it's a good time to bring her up. Yeah, no, and you're right about that. And and as we're recording this, I never even, uh, I never, I that's something I should have incorporated because yeah, you're right. She was, I, I get, I guess, kind of like the hump you have to jump over with this kind of stuff is kind of admitting it. And I, I, I don't know. It it always bothered me someone who was just like, kind of just take your pills or 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 whatever. And there's a whole, I mean, you know, God bless. Again, we're talking about a TV show, but God bless families that have to deal with that. Because I don't know how you would, you know. It's um, complicated. Yeah, like I don't even know. It, 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 and there's a problem where it's not it's not a simple thing like 
just don't do this or just do that. It's, there's 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 so much blurred lines there with it. Um, but yeah, and, and you know, a, a big part of it too is we we know what happens later on. So this Chenoweth saga. But yeah, it, it, it's a great point. It, it, it's it's the most clear, clear, the, the decisive thing I've heard on there. On there. Yeah, and and Brenda is essentially his caretaker at this point. Yeah. You know, she she's taking care of him and she's checking in on him and making sure he's okay and that he doesn't hurt himself because he doesn't have the mental landscape to know when he's hurting himself and when, you know, when he's being self-destructive or when he's going too far. He doesn't think that showing up to Vegas is a bad thing, you know. Even like part of him knows, but when he's making those decisions, he's he's not he's not using the same moral calculator that you and I would. And it's really, it's just really hard to try and reason with someone who doesn't have reason, you know. For sure. How, how do you, how do you, that's, that's how me and you are talking right now, you know, and that's how, every, you know, people interact. But if one, on one end of that, you just don't have that there. Yeah, you lose a lot of that common ground. But yeah, David is given his speech at the funeral director's convention and it's titled, the future of independent funeral homes, a cautious overview. Uh, while Dave is giving <laughs> his speech, he has this, you know, typical TV trope where he just throws his papers in the air and goes freestyle. At the end of his speech, he gets, you know, he talks, just talks about how, you know, being, you know, as a local owned funeral home, you know, he has to battle essentially Kroner, you know, this corporate giant coming up against them. They have to be more more personable more than ever. And he mentions in his speech about, you know, the kind of businessman that Nathaniel was where he didn't always talk a family out of cremation. He sometimes he pointed them to a cheaper casket. And, you know, Nathaniel being a what 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 would you describe the kind of businessman that we know so far that Nathaniel was? I I guess he was like a trade guy. I I don't know he did a lot of stuff, I mean, I guess that you can't do today where, and we saw like in that episode in the room, he did a funeral for weed, uh, a funeral for car repairs. Um, right. What I don't know what kind of business, the, the, if you had to categorize that kind of businessman, is, is there a term for that? Well, I, I like to say he operates in the gray, you know. Yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. He, he, he's not all... He's not a uh, uh, leave it to Beaver, but he's not Joe Pesci from Goodfellas either. He's <laughs> he's operating like I think he he does things because he sees humanity. Like I think he traded car service not because he needed his car done, but because that's all they could afford. Right, and it right, works right. out for him, but it's not necessarily like it doesn't really benefit him. I think he's a healthy dose of Nate and David when it comes to the business side of, of what we know about him. I think yeah, yeah. Nate really cares about the humanity and the experience of the customer. And, and David's the one who wants to buy the cat. Oh, that's a spoiler. Uh, but David's the <laughs> one who, who, who he, it's not like he ha he's devoid of humanity. He's very human and he cares for people a lot. But when it comes to running the business, he sees it as a business. He's there with the yeah. suit on every day, you know, and, uh, he he's he tells Nate not to encourage uh, cremations, you know. So I think uh, this is David embracing that because I think his experience with Kroner 
hasn't been a good one and he realizes the threat that they uh that that they are and also mm-hmm. what is the pushback against that threat it's not a dollar bill and some matches it's operating a good business and that's how you how you stay alive and you know something you said there and you know so that i just wanted to to give a quick little note on that you said you know david is about the business and David is here. He's he's the one who cares about the bottom line. And as a business, someone has to end up caring about that bottom line. And just what he had mentioned, you know, pointing a family, he didn't mind pointing a family towards a cheaper casket. And, you know, that's sort of it kind of it's, it's supposed to be a negative towards Kroner that they would never they would never do that. And, you know, something that's tough with my you know, I, I you know what, let me say this. What's tougher than the emotions or the grief of having a dead family, a family there for their deceased one. Um, what's tougher is sort of when you're making, for lack of a better term, or not to be so blunt about it, but you're making business decisions when you're arranging a funeral. And, you know, it's tough sometimes, you know, decisions have to be made, whether it be a casket or, or whatever in terms of services. And there is a dollar amount to that. But you're doing that at a time where, this person's mother or father or whoever just died. So, you you know, it's funny to, to be a quote unquote good funeral director. You have to sort sort of be in between what you have to be in between what Kroner is and what the Fishers are, you know, mm-hmm. kind of uh, business like, but you have to be also be very compassionate. Uh, I mean, it's no secret what I'm saying, and it's pretty obvious, at least good, good moral people that. If you could tell a family can't afford this casket, you don't let them have this casket. You know, while it is a business, you can't also just run your customer dry, <laughs> you know, put them into debt because of it. So, you know, and, and part of two, part of David's speech, he's giving a speech. And like I said, the title was the the, the local funeral home and Kroner, Gilardi, they're all in the front row. There is no point for Kroner and Gilardi to be there. First of all, let me let me, let me scale that back for a second. This is a funeral director's convention, and maybe the scale, the landscape changed a bit in 15 years. But Kroner and the company they represent, they have their own convention because they're a, you know, they're all over, you know, the United States and and. Uh, North America, let me say. So there's no reason why they would be there. There's no reason why a corporate funeral home would be listening to uh, a presentation on the local funeral home. So when they kind of all get up at the end and all walk out, it's a little bit of a, a, not a plot hole. The plot hole is not the correct word. A goof of sorts. And again, it's to facilitate story and whatnot. But in in the quote unquote real world, they would never be there. You know what I mean? I think... I think we all know that Gallardi was there to to have his bachelor party, and they were gonna <laughs> murder a sex worker and bury her in the desert, and because he look he looks exactly like that type. Yep, yep, yep. And so he just showed up there to be a bully. Yeah, I mean, he looks he just looks he he smells like he's privileged, you know, like he just has that. He oh, is. he was he was born on third. <laughs> For yeah, sure. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, that's hard. That's a hard look to pull off in a room of funeral directors, you know. Um, <laughs> they, all, they all have, you know, you got to be extra, extra special to be like that. 
Uh, <laughs> what's funny here is at the end of David's speech, you know, he's getting the the standing ovation and whatnot, and you know, kind of kind of the only person that could probably say this to him and it be met with such such love is you know he's getting a standing ovation and you just see the, the 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 smile and the joy on David, and Nate is just as happy for him and he just walks up to him and he's like you know <laughs> way to go you big freak. And, you know, yeah. he's just like, and David's like, yeah, yeah, I am a freak. Look at me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a sweet moment. Uh, uh-huh. The the two of them, as much as I could gush about this show, there are many moments that they share that really just, like, get me a little misty-eyed sometimes after watching it, you know, four or five times. Yeah, and, and, and I'm, I'm doing a callback here to a prior episode, but at the end of, I believe it was episode seven, Brotherhood, after going through a funeral, uh, Nate just takes David and just hugs him, just says, I love you. And that's such a genuine moment, and that's kind of had those things happen. I, I, guess, I guess kind of to, 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 to further on your point, I, th- I, I value their, their relationship in this show the most because, yeah, there's those brother mm-hmm. moments they have. And like this, this is so – I mean, listen to what we're saying. He called him a big freak, and it was the most endearing term and most endearing moment between them I've ever seen, you know? There was oh, such for a, sure. It's <laughs> such a pure, pure happiness, and <laughs> so he called him a freak. I just loved it the way – and just the way his eyes Well, and uh-huh. it, it, it's something that just kind of hit me is uh, Ruth's – vision of david in the beginning is is a freak show i mean that's what she imagines yeah that's what she would she would consider a freak show and so to contrast those two one is uh shock and uh you know this kind of like uh what's the the word i'm looking for is but but one one is kind of like a, a shock and and she she doesn't want to embrace that she's not ready to and the other is like a term of endearment. It's this really sweet moment. And uh, I think those are meant to play against each other where Nate has already accepted David as he is. Not not just sexually, but also like all of his personality quirks and the way he operates. And it's, it's a sweet thing. Yeah, it's yeah, it definitely is. And after... David gives his speech. The other local funeral directors, funeral director owners, uh, want to take David out for the night in the town, and they end up at a strip club. The first thing I wanted to say about the stripper is, you know, she cares a lot about, on TV, and, you know, my experience with strip clubs, that is the most caring stripper ever on television, because she seems genuinely interested into why David isn't enjoying himself, whatnot. To which we find out David lets her know I'm gay. This stripper tells his party and who he's with. You know, they're kind of rousing David, like, oh, what happened? Why did it end so soon? And, you know, she just kind of barks at them, you know, he's gay, you idiots. How didn't you know this? How did that sit with you when she kind of barks at? Because I, I took offense to it kind of the first time. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You don't, you don't just yell that out to, you know, uh, maybe whether or not they knew, whatever. I don't know. I just took offense to it when she barked it out. What did you think? Uh, I just thought it played comedically really well. Okay. I didn't think about. I didn't think about it from from that perspective. I mean, David obviously like kind of takes a moment, and you know, the, there's a real push on it, like camera wise. It kind of pushes in on his face, and he mm-hmm. swigs his whiskey, and he 
he says, I believe me, I, I do too. Cause they said, <laughs> I wish you would have told us that. Yeah. Uh, but that whole scene, I think the way I read it was more comedy and even his, even their response to that, I think is, is about they're more pissed that they spent money on a lap dance. He would have enjoyed <laughs> that. They could have spilt spent on themselves uh, than anything else. I, I yeah. don't think there was a, a problem accepting his gayness, but I don't know. That's just my reading of it. Um, but I, I do think the stripper working in that field is, uh, is the, the way they talk about sex and sexuality is probably much more open than in the dark halls of the Fisher house. So I think <laughs> to her, it was like a didoy. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I and I guess I guess where I'm coming from is is in in this particular rewatch, and I'm probably about a year older than my last rewatch. I'm really protective of David, and every episode, I'm just kind of like, "Come on, David, get it together, get it together, like be more confident and whatnot." So I guess when when he had said that. And, you know, all his friends, you know, she tells all his friends he's gay. I was just like, oh, come on. You know, and like you said, there, there's he swigs the last part of his drink and essentially calls it a night. But, yes, it is meant to be more comedic, I guess, because, you know, just the way they all kind of laugh about it. But that ends up ending at least David's night. And you, you, you we would both agree that. David ended the night, right? Because it didn't seem like they cared that he was gay. It was just more like, well, why didn't you tell us? We don't care, right? Yeah. Or if, if if anything, I I don't know if it ended David's night. I think it was the out he wanted. And oh, really? Not, no, no, no pun intended. But I think he, I think he was waiting to get away from those guys. He didn't seem like he wanted to go in the first place. And as soon as he left, he called up uh, Brad. You know, so he could have been the 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 moment he was waiting for just to get the hell out of there. Yeah, that's that's it, you know you know what's, you know what's really funny about that. We watched that scene. We both had wildly different <laughs> outtakes from it. You know, you watched it as comedic, and that was his way out. And I look, I yeah. looked at it as like you know, how dare you out him? And <laughs> him calling was just kind of a scramble to kind of I don't know, kind of like he didn't know what else to do and just wanted some affection, whatnot. So he calls day uh, Brad. And Brad, as we see, if you've ever been to Vegas, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's this, it's, I thought it was cards. It looked like David had like a little pamphlet here, but these cards and he calls a male escort and the guy shows up <laughs> looking years age to what he was before. Uh, and something, it's, it's every episode and it's a common theme is just how bluntly gay this show is, how much they throw it in your face because... We see later on that David and this escort, Brad, go to a parking lot, have sex, have unprotected sex on the hood of a car. And I've seen that scene a bunch of times with a male and a female. I can't recall where there was the two males doing it and the terminology they're using while they're doing it. Like it's 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 very blunt and in your face. This is gay and way ahead of its time for 2001. Right, I mean, mm -hmm. well, yeah, uh, you know, up to that point, I think most gay men in in uh, in media and probably especially talking TV shows, they were mostly like 
accessories to women. You know, it was these real stock characters uh, who popped up every once in a while, and they went shopping with the the female lead characters, and you know, they they didn't always have this depth that you got or you that you got with David and with Keith and with all, all the gay characters on the show. Um, they treated them as characters who like to have sex and who are fucked up and who are also not fucked up, you know, like, and, and I think Alan Ball, everything Alan Ball does in the show is super intentional, you know, and I think that that episode in season one toward the end, it was just, it's just him. Cause, uh, even the kisses between David and Keith or David and some of the other characters, they're not they're not quick smooches they don't shy away you see it's aggressive you see it's you see them make out you see uh david get burn on his face from kissing too much you know like <laughs> these these are human beings and alan ball is a is gay and uh i think he wanted to to, to write really great characters who are underrepresented in media at the time you know, it's it's not just Philadelphia with Tom Hanks, and it's not just uh, you know Sex in the City side characters. Uh, and and I think I think doing that would probably turn off people who might have been like Ruth watching, but it also right. could have helped them come around because I think Ruth's journey with David in season one is also like the conversation that the show was having with America at the time where when Ruth saw the vision in the beginning, that's what America thought homosexuality was. But by the end of this, but by the end they realized these are human beings. They're not stereotypes and they're not, they're not, uh, uh, perverted or, you know, anything like that. And, and you know, it's funny while you say that it is to show that they are, there, yeah, yeah, exactly like you said that. There was a lot of people. If I could divide the audience, it's probably people like Ruth and people like Nate. At least in terms of two thousand one, where there's some people who think like that's what they do, and that's what these, you know, they'll say things like that's what these people do, and then there's mm-hmm. people like Nate, like go on, man, you go get laid, get yours, you know. Um, I don't think back in 2001, and I'm probably being unfair, but I don't think there was a middle ground. Whereas today, I think, you know, you kind of, there's a lot larger landscape of it. Keith shows up as sort of the knight in shining armor and gets David out of this jam. Keith, always the rock. I mention every time I bring up his name in the show. And, you know, he cares about David a lot to the point where what's what's the time difference, the the drive from from Los Angeles to it's Vegas? A, it's about about four hours uh-huh. in the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah, right. Without traffic. So this guy, this Keith drove from took the four hours to show up for, you know, what, a three minute, three minute conversation. And, you know, Keith mentions that. He, you know, he did this because he loves him. And something I wanted to get into was what what does Keith love about David? Keith is emotionally secure. He knows what he wants. He's very he's well put together. And David 
in kind of the way we just talked about is I don't want to say he's a broken man, but he's not sure of himself and not in just his sexuality either. You mm-hmm. know, he's just kind of a who am I in all aspects of his life. Um, when when David says he loves him, my mind went to like, well, what are you getting out of this? And again, it's not it's not that every relationship has to be I'm getting this out of it or you're getting this out of it just keith seems so strong in what he wants what he he gets what he provides whereas it seems you know these past few episodes in their relationship it seems david provides nothing but uh, i don't know the word instability so what 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 do you think when keith says i love you what what does he love he cares about him. You could say, I care about you. There's a, to me, there's a huge difference between I like you and I care about you and I love you. Well, I, I wonder, I don't know what the age difference is of the characters. I don't know if it's ever plainly stated. But I wonder if, if Keith sees an old version of himself in David. Because we know Keith has daddy issues as well. I can't remember if that's explored in season one or if that's in the future, but it's something that gets talked about quite a lot in this show. Yeah. And uh, and I think that Keith probably sees that in David. He sees his struggle uh, about identity and about his homosexuality, and I think part of him probably feels a lot of empathy for him, but he's also was in love with him. They were in a relationship, and I think... So some of that probably carries over much in a weird way, kind of like Brenda and Billy, where Brenda feels responsible for Billy. And um, I, I wonder if um, Keith, I mean, Keith is just the best. I mean, he's, <laughs> he really is. <laughs> he, he's, I would call him if I was arrested in Vegas. Yeah. Uh, yeah but yeah. I, I, I think he's the type of guy who, A, if he was ever in love with you, that's going to stick around. You guys aren't going to get ghosted if when you break up with Keith. He'll, he'll be there when you need him. And I think uh, I think that love sits with him. Um, I don't know what he gets from David at this juncture in the relationship, aside from... Well, are they, they're broken up at this time. They're broken up. The episode prior, they kind of had a night together, and then David tried to... He invited up David invited Keith up his to to his room and David essentially tried to get laid and Keith was like no I'm I'm here to talk to you make sure you're okay I'm not here to go down that road with you yeah I I just think it's a I think it's a deep genuine love that he has for him and because he knows when he got that call he knows David's in Vegas with Nate and he could have called Nate and he could have been out of jail within the hour but he maybe less maybe a half hour. But he, he called Keith, and Keith knows that. So I think part of that is understanding David's um, psyche, mm-hmm. that he would call Keith and wait an extra five hours in jail, then call Nate mm-hmm. and get out in ten minutes. I think that's yeah. something important to consider as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Back to Claire and Gabe. There's a scene where, you know, after she talks about her feelings about Gabe to Ruth, she sort of has this self-realization that she loves Gabe. And, you know, <laughs> to bring back your Carrie Fisher point, and, you know, we've been wallowing in the Carrie Fisher death 
for you know the past week or so and the moment where claire tells gabe i love you i've been conditioned and i've done a rewatch of this between our failed failed recording uh i, I still was expecting when claire says i love you for gabe to say i know you know, if you're a Star Wars <laughs> fan, you know exactly what that is. But and that kind of wraps up their little their little thing. Um it's it's like something happened in this Claire storyline with Gay, but not much. I mean it just kind of what's the word? Treading water. He he tried to commit suicide yeah. and that's kind of all that really happened. Right? I mean, unless right. you have something I think if anything, it just shows that Claire is the key to that story. That <laughs> she she's she's been genuinely a pain in the ass and kind of selfish up to this point. So for her to go drive to two hours to Barstow, it, it's a I think a pretty big deal. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's a at least just a, a nice little character development for her because he treats her like she would have treated, you know, David or mm-hmm. anything like that. Like if she was in the hospital and brought her cold McMuffin, she probably would have reacted the same way. So I think this was a character growth moment for her to to realize to be less of an asshole. <laughs> and you know, it's so it's so clear to say I love you to the man who just tried to commit suicide. She's yeah. so attracted to for lack of a better term, danger. Uh, yeah. Train you know, wrecks. Yeah. She's so attracted to train wrecks. And yeah, just you wait, listeners. <laughs> uh, this show dates itself every single episode. And I, w- there's going to be a point in time where this sort of stops as we get later into the series. But when Brenda and Nate come back after their trip to Vegas and they're kind of going over their pictures, they're looking at actual pictures that they took with their disposable camera and oh yeah depending on how old you are you remember a time where once you were done with your what was it 32 pictures on a disposable camera yeah 32 32 and you would bring it to the one hour photoshop or your cvs your walgreens wait for it to get it developed they would ask you if you want doubles and then you would do this where <laughs> you would bring it you know and you would kind of look over the pictures and you got a bunch of negatives too, right, with it, and you kind of tossed those or kept those, whatnot. Um, you know, we were talking about just, you know, this point in time and how, I guess, how I wanted to reword it is, let's say this happens in two, 2016. So, obviously, 2001, they get the pictures developed. Is it as simple as she finds this picture on her phone later is it emailed like how do you think billy does this in 2017 ooh um my mind went to like billy could have taken the picture on his own phone and sent it to them later but there's an extra level of creepy of taking your phone and taking a picture with it i think i think if if uh if he had the time i think he would have cracked nate's passcode and took it on Nate's phone. Because you know he knows yeah, Brenda's, yeah. no matter how many yeah, times yeah, she changes no it. But I think he would have gotten a lot of pleasure from um, invading Nate's personal space by going on his phone and taking the pictures. Yeah. So we're in agreement that he would have not He would have not done the simple thing of take it with his phone. He would have used one of their phones and let, let it sit there for them to find later, right? 
Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. To we're sort of at the end of our episode and we kind of didn't really touch much upon the Ruth storyline. Ruth's storyline in this episode is basically she's not good at making flowers. They are too quote unquote dead. She goes to a flower arranging making class. Uh, in there, they said they do yoga after, and your your comment on that is that it's basically very Los Angeles for them to be yoga in a flower arranging class, right? Oh, oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> people at my office do yoga on their uh-huh. lunch breaks in their office. Uh-huh. It just it, when she said it during the 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 flower making, I was like, okay. And you know what? That that's creative. You know, I guess I guess you know you're combining the two and whatnot. But I mean, to me, to me, to me, her storyline just kind of was kind of one note where she was not good at making flowers. She has this moment where she has this I don't know, self-inspiration moment where she makes the greatest flower piece, and then after you know our other I forget his name, but the other gentleman's relegated to cashier duty, and you know Ruth is black back on flowers. Um, yeah, Rob, Robbie is his Robbie name. is Robbie. Yeah, and oh god, I love Robbie. He becomes a character later on. That's a spoiler, but um, oh, he's great. He's great. What's what what what? Were you able to extract anything from this Ruth storyline? Because I I kind of, and again, I've watched this episode quite a few times. I just there wasn't there. Were, it's funny because you know the moment where they start banging on the flowers and everything. It there you know there's 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 typical Ruth humor, but. To me, not as much to extract from to discuss, but maybe you have something. Well, there's there's two things, but real quick before I go into those, I I uh, I mentioned to you, I actually live right down the street from uh, Nikolai's Flower Shop. I was uh-huh. I moved here, I moved to the Valley in Los Angeles uh, six months ago, and I was walking around the neighborhood with my girlfriend. We we're just kind of checking, scoping out the area, and she, she recognized it. And it was this little gas station and a little flower shop. And it was boarded up. And uh, as recently as a couple months ago, they actually just tore it all down. Wow. Which is, which is a shame, but it's, it's still fun to kind of see my neighborhood yeah. on, uh, on my favorite show. But if, uh, if anyone's a classic Hollywood fan, it's also the last place James Dean was seen alive. He filled up uh, gas at that gas station and then hopped on the highway and unfortunately didn't come back. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. Good old Hollywood. <laughs> I'm someone who loves filming locations, so I love hearing about stuff like that, especially in a show like this that I love. So, Well, I went down to the house too, which was yes. just incredible. Yeah, I'm going to do, like... do, uh, do a tally because you're the second one so far. Um, okay. But I just I'm I have I've been to California, but I have not been there, and it would be like a, a, a not a goal, not a dream. It would be it would be a life highlight if I got to be in front of the house because that's awesome. That you know, it was like know. Disneyland. You know, we parked across <laughs> the street, and I walked up. I walked on the porch where where the you know where they would hang out and smoke pot, and then I walked to the driveway where you know right by the the in law the mother in law yeah. house. Yeah, and we just stood around for for like ten or fifteen minutes and just kind of soaked it in. And I pictured all my favorite moments that happened outside Hell the yeah. exteriors, and it's beautiful. Um, but the Ruth storyline, yeah. Uh, the two quick things is, I think it's a little bit like helping Ruth 
you know, she she tells her to like breathe with her stomach or right, her right. heart and not her head. And um you know, that's just like unwinding a bit of Ruth, but it's it's not a lot. Uh the other thing I liked, which was kind of funny, was after she takes the class and Nikolai assigns her to do the flowers and Robbie's like, I've been doing flowers for twenty two years and Nikolai says, But do you have certificate from flower class and i think that that might be ahead of its time because now there's so much pressure on young kids to go and get degrees and to get master's degrees and to get phds and spend 10 years in school you know to get like an average job now i know it's really competitive to get any job and having a master's degree could could help you get a job at a movie theater like Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it's it's all so meaningless if you don't actually have experience or you're not good at the task you're hired to do. So mm-hmm. I think it's a good Alan Ball. Like I said, he knows what he's doing. And in 2001, I don't think, I don't know if it was as big of a deal as, as it is now. Cause I think that student loan bubble that we're living in is going to pop any day now. Yeah. Uh, so that, that kind of made me smile and I, it was, it was nice. Yeah, no. And uh, you know what? Uh, props to you for being able to extract that. Because I kind of, and I sat and I thought about it because Ruth is so interesting and she's such a great character on the show. And I was just kind of like, I just can't wait till we get to, to Robbie. That was that was my biggest takeaway was <laughs> getting to Robbie. But good, I'm, I'm glad you were able to extract something. Uh, our episode closes out with the birth of Rico's son, Augusto. And, you know, just something beautiful Six Feet Under does. The show starts out with a baby death and ends with a baby birth. And That's right. You know, good for Rico, uh, you know, all he was going through for this episode and let's say the past two or three days, such fear and fear of the unknown, I guess, even though this is a second kid, but just finally to, for the baby to get here. There's a quick moment where the baby, I think the umbilical cord is around the neck. So, you know, th- there's a quick moment of fear, but the baby is fine. And, you know, uh, Vanessa, too, the, the mother, the one that's actually doing <laughs> the nine months of work good for her and you know they welcome their second son into the world and that's sort of it for them until the next episode anything final on that rico storyline that he goes through uh not rico but i did want to bring up um something we talked about in the lost episode real quick was i like some of the camera work in the this episode there is a a shot of david in the police station where it starts kind of as a close-up and slowly as Keith mm-hmm. walks away, the camera, you know, it's it's one tracking shot that moves back and people are crossing in the hall kind of, you know, it pulls away on the hall and he kind of gets engulfed in it. And it's just a real beautiful visual moment and six feet under. Um, and the other one was when he's, he's when they're leaving Vegas, there's another tracking shot that's like almost kind of like Scorsese or Robert Altman where it's at David and Nate and then it moves to Nate and Brenda talking in the front seat and then it moves back. And it's uh, it's just art. It's artfully done. The director's Michael Angler. He's most he's an all TV guy. No movies, but I just like when TV directing gets a touch of art. Because uh, for the most part, especially back in two thousand one, it was pretty standard stuff. Uh, and I'm a film guy, so I, I always love noticing these touches. And you notice it, at least me personally. I it took me a while to understand stuff like that. My first watch of this, I definitely did not. I guess it happened a little bit later in life where I just I didn't pick up on those things. 
And yes, now watching it, like, yeah, that's a great shot when you see how alone David is and the camera's pulling away and just stuff like that. Yeah, that's 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 good. And I like I like I like when I realize it because I'll be honest, I'm not someone who always notices it. It might take me, you know, a few a few watchings to pick up on stuff like that. But uh, yes, this show. This show does that stuff. good. You know, I, I know I know of later episodes that I could bring to my head where I think of that stuff. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's for its time, beautifully done that this wasn't going on a lot in television, you know? So, and, and when, when that aspect ratio changes, it's going to be much better <laughs> season, yeah, right? season three, baby. <laughs> Even this podcast will sound better quality wise, just because the, the, the black bars. Get removed. <laughs> That's uh, right. Colin, that wraps up our episode. Um, if you want to, again, you're doing a, a podcast. I, I've been, you know, when you told me about it, I've just been thinking about it because I'm really interested in that Interstellar uh, 2001. Do you have a release date for your first episode? Uh, it will it'll be the second week of January, probably. Sometime. Okay. Um, I guess, depending on when this comes out, it'll be next week or this week, but... We're recording uh, this weekend, and uh, it's going to be good. We got some good stuff coming up, and if you like talking about movies and old movies and new movies and camera work, then I'm your guy. Mm -hmm. It's it's another film podcast. That's okay. what it's called. On Twitter, it's at another film pod, uh, and we have a SoundCloud that I'll be able to that will be on there, and you'll be able to get it on iTunes and all that stuff eventually. Hopefully sooner rather than later. Once the episode is up and when you are listening to this, we'll determine when it's there. But I'm going to include a link on, you know, to this episode to that because uh, I do like to, you know, sometimes someone really liked what you're saying and they go, you know, I love being able to kind of just pass someone off to like, yeah, go listen to this podcast. Um, if you're listening to this podcast, you're interested in, you know, a, a variety of stuff. So. Yeah, it, depending on when you're listening to this, when when Colin releases it, it'll I'll have it linked onto his page on the podcast. Check out the website; it's diggingpodcast.com. Uh, it's kind of newly launched, so we're still in the ground stages of it. Uh, you could follow me on Twitter at diggingpodcast. You could email me with any questions or thoughts on the episode at digging6feetunder at gmail.com and we're on iTunes we're at Facebook at digging6feetunder on anything that's <laughs> social media just type, look for me at digging6feetunder and you can join me next week as we'll be discussing episode 12 of season 1 of 6 Feet Under titled A Private Life thank you for listening everyone Thank you for listening to the Digging Six Feet Under podcast. Join us on the next episode as we review each episode of HBO's original television series, Six Feet Under. Please search and subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes under Digging Six Feet Under. The Digging Six Feet Under podcast is in no way affiliated with HBO or Six Feet Under, and the views expressed here are solely that of the hosts. No infringement is intended.